This is the LexisNexis New York Legal News Podcast. Litigation news stories from New York courts as reported in recent issues of LexisNexis Mealy Publications. Current and targeted legal news and litigation reports. A jury in the MTBE Multidistrict Litigation Court on October 19th held ExxonMobil Corporation liable for contaminating New York City's drinking water with a gasoline additive and awarded the city $105 million in compensatory damages. The city sued 23 oil companies back in 2003 after finding traces of MTBE in water wells in Queens. The contamination of wells, known as the Station 6 wells, was at issue during the trial against ExxonMobil. Other defendants had settled before trial began in early August. According to the final jury verdict form, the jury held ExxonMobil liable for the city's injuries as a direct spiller of the MTBE-containing gasoline and as a manufacturer, supplier, or seller. The jury found gasoline-containing MTBE was a defective product because ExxonMobil gave no warnings about the product's dangerous propensity to contaminate groundwater. The jury found gasoline containing MTBE was not reasonably safe for its intended use in light of foreseeable harm to the environment. The jury also found in favor of the city on its public nuisance, trespass, and negligence claims. The federal judge in a shareholder-consolidated class action lawsuit regarding Internet company initial public offerings granted final approval on October 5th to a $586 million settlement between the shareholders and the underwriter and stockbroker defendants. Shareholders filed 309 actions in federal courts throughout the country, claiming 55 underwriters, the issuers, and hundreds of individual corporate officers conspired to manipulate the market for IPOs of Internet and high-tech stocks. Those cases were later consolidated as a multi-district litigation in the Southern District of New York. In 2004, Judge Shira Shenlin granted the shareholders' motion for class certification in six focus cases, but the Second Circuit reversed and remanded in December 2006. In April 2007, though, the Second Circuit clarified its opinion and explained that it applied only to the broad class certified. It allowed the plaintiffs to seek a more modest class that would satisfy the federal rule of civil procedure's predominance requirement. The judge granted preliminary approval to the settlement and certified the settlement classes in June 2009. She also granted plaintiffs' counsel an award of one-third of the net settlement fund, or just over $170 million. The Second Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals has ruled that a rabbi has no grounds to sue the temple she formerly served in connection with her termination because the court lacked subject matter jurisdiction. Ariel Friedlander was hired by Port Jewish Center in May 2005. The employment contract she signed was for three years, beginning July 1, 2005. Her contract gave her, quote, freedom of the pulpit, unquote, and stipulated that the temple could fire her only for gross misconduct or willful neglect of duty. However, Friedlander claimed that she butted heads with a small number of the congregants when she refused to make a bat mitzvah more interfaith or to perform special favors that she said were more suited for the celebration afterward rather than the religious ceremony itself. She claimed that although the group was small, it was a wealthy, influential group that was opposed to having a gay rabbi. In early June 2006, Friedlander was given a list of areas where the temple's executive committee felt she was falling short in job performance. She received a letter from the temple stating that the board of trustees had voted unanimously to recommend to the congregation that her contract be terminated. 
Following her termination, Friedlander sued the Temple in the Eastern District of New York. Judge Arthur Spatt dismissed the case for lack of subject matter jurisdiction, and Friedlander appealed. Affirming the trial court ruling, the Second Circuit panel held in a summary order that the case falls under the boundaries of the ministerial exception. It said review of Friedlander's claims would require scrutiny of whether she should have, among other things, read more extensively from the Torah at certain services, prepared students for their bar or bat mitzvah more adequately, performed certain pastoral services that were not performed, or followed the temple's funeral service policies. A reviewing court would also be required to assess whether any failures rose to the level of gross misconduct or willful neglect of duty under the relevant employment contract. The circuit court agreed with the district court that such review would involve impermissible judicial inquiry. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Michael Lefkowitz. The Second Circuit has upheld a federal judge's ruling finding a mortgage brokerage company's claims that a number of credit bureaus misappropriated trade secrets by allowing other mortgage lenders to purchase pre-screened consumer reports containing trigger leads were preempted by the Fair Credit Reporting Act. The Circuit Court also found plaintiff premium mortgage corporations did not sufficiently plead that the credit bureaus had a duty and obligation to maintain the confidentiality of trigger leads and that the defendant companies acted with the sole purpose of harming the plaintiff when they allowed other lenders to purchase the pre-screened reports. In July 2007, Premium Mortgage filed a class action suit in the Western District of New York against credit bureaus Equifax Incorporated, TransUnion, and others. Premium Mortgage says the credit bureaus were allowing other lenders to buy pre-screened reports of consumers who had recently applied for mortgages and other loans, and that the other lenders then competed with Premium Mortgage and other mortgage brokers. The district court pointed out that the operative provision of the Fair Credit Reporting Act states that no requirement or prohibition should be imposed with respect to any subject matter related to the pre-screening of consumer reports. Two victims of Bernard Madoff's multi-billion dollar Ponzi scheme filed a lawsuit against the Securities and Exchange Commission on October 14th, alleging the SEC was negligent in its investigations and examinations of Madoff and his investment firm. Victims Vilas Molchatsky and Stephen Schneider filed their complaint in the Southern District of New York. They seek monetary damages arising from the, quote, serial gross negligence of the United States Securities and Exchange Commission in performing its non-discretionary functions during its multiple investigations and examinations of Madoff and his firm, triggered primarily by its receipt of numerous detailed, credible complaints between 1992 and 2008. The plaintiffs say, as the Office of the Inspector General of the SEC and its forensic experts have determined in a report dated August 31st, the SEC had countless opportunities to stop the Ponzi scheme Madoff operated over 16 years and, quote, botched all of them. The plaintiffs bring a claim for negligence under the Federal Tort Claims Act and seek more than a combined $2.4 million in damages sustained in their losses in Madoff's Ponzi scheme. The trustee for the Bernard Madoff Investment Securities liquidation proceedings sued Madoff's brother, sons, and niece on October 2nd, claiming the defendants used the company's finances as if it were, quote, the family piggy bank, and seeking to recover nearly $200 million from preferential payments, fraudulent transfers, and fraudulent conveyances they received. The complaint was filed in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court for the Southern District of New York. In it, Bernard Madoff Investment Securities bankruptcy trustee Irving Picard contends the defendants, quote, either failed to detect or failed to stop the fraud, thereby enabling and facilitating the Ponzi scheme. 
Simply put, Picard says, if the family members have been doing their jobs honestly and faithfully, the Madoff Ponzi scheme might never have succeeded or continued for so long. The U.S. Supreme Court on October 5th denied a petition for review of two New York appellate court decisions vacating a deceased smoker's $20 million verdict. A New York County Supreme Court jury awarded Norma Rose and her husband $3.42 million in compensatory damages and said they were entitled to approximately $17 million in punitive damages. Norma Rose smoked from the time she was a teenager in the 1940s until 1993 when she quit. She was subsequently diagnosed with lung cancer and died during the course of the litigation. The Roses had sued Brown and Williamson, Philip Morris USA, and R.J. Reynolds, alleging that after development during the 1960s of light cigarettes, the tobacco companies should have stopped selling regular cigarettes altogether and sold only light cigarettes. A New York Appellate Division panel found the Roses' negligent design case was legally insufficient without evidence of a safer, feasible alternative design. It reversed the judgment and dismissed the complaint. The New York Court of Appeals affirmed, agreeing that the Roses failed to prove an essential element of their case, that regular and light cigarettes have the same, quote, utility, end quote. In a June petition for certiorari from the U.S. Supreme Court, the Rose family said the appellate court's decisions were based on the retroactive application of a new element of proof under New York product liability law, consumer acceptability, requiring that the safer alternatively designed product must have the same utility, be equivalent in function, and be as personally pleasing as the challenged product. None of the defending companies filed responses to the petition. The Supreme Court considered the petition at its September 29th conference. It denied certiorari without comment on October 5th. For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Mealy's Tobacco Litigation Publication Editor, Jerry Maddox. A federal judge in New York has found that Xerox Corporation is entitled to summary judgment on a competitor's counterclaim that Xerox has monopoly power in the aftermarket for its phase change color printers replacement ink sticks and has illegally maintained that power by making frequent and unnecessary changes to the design of its ink sticks and its printer's feed channels. In concluding that Media Sciences Incorporated did not set out specific facts showing a genuine issue for trial as to Xerox's monopoly power, Southern District of New York Judge Richard Hallwell ruled that Media Sciences was unable to show that customers who owned a Xerox printer were locked in by the high cost of migrating to a non-Xerox printer or that Xerox exploited its locked-in customers. A Southern District of New York judge on October 14th rejected assertions by the American Society of Composers, Authors, and Publishers, or ASCAP, that retail wireless companies should be required to obtain public performance licenses for musical compositions because they provide ringtones to their customers. The court said ringtones do not constitute a performance, as defined in the Transmission Clause of the Copyright Act, and the act of downloading a ringtone does not represent the first link in a chain of transmissions to the public. Celco Partnership, doing business as Verizon Wireless, filed the action seeking a declaratory judgment that it does not need to pay public performance licensing fees for ringtones. Before filing its complaint, Verizon applied for a determination of reasonable fees for a blanket license for the public performance of musical compositions in ASCAP's repertory. ASCAP argued Verizon engaged in public performances of musical works when it downloads ringtones to customers, and that Verizon is liable for public performance of musical works when customers play ringtones on their phones. The court said because only one subscriber is capable of receiving the transmission or performance, it is not made to the public, and it is not covered by the transmission clause, at least when considered by itself. Further, the court noted Verizon customers are not playing the ringtones for a commercial advantage. 
For LexisNexis Legal News, I'm Mark Rogers. The Lexis One Community, where individual attorneys are going for free case law, the Lexis Web Search Engine, free forums, and Mealy's Online. Get access to Lexis.com through research packages for the time you need without signing a long-term contract. Check out Emerging Issues Analysis, News, Blogs, The Download Center, the LexisNexis Store, and more. Lexis One, the online community and research resource for individual attorneys. www.lexisone.com LexisNexis Legal News New York, written by the editors of Mealy Publications, current and targeted legal news and litigation reports. For further information on these and other New York cases, visit LexisNexis.com slash or TotalLitigator.com. The LexisNexis New York Legal News Podcast, copyright 2009 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis, total practice solutions. This is Steve Bursler. Thank you for listening.